Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the final episode of the podcast, where I, joined by Matt and Diego, finally answer the question you have all been waiting for. What was with all those dots? But first, let's discuss some more about Slaughterhouse-Five. On this first podcast, we're going to discuss one of Vonnegut's earliest recorded speeches, Let the Killing Stop. Um, it's, it was written a couple months after he had written Slaughterhouse-Five. Um, so now I want to ask you guys, how do you think this, uh, this speech relates to Slaughterhouse-Five? Well, we've seen throughout Slaughterhouse-Five, it's kind of an anti-violence book in a sense. We know he doesn't like the idea of war, and he doesn't like people who make machinery that cause mass destruction so he's obviously against war and he even brings that up in let the killing stop he says there is no peace in vietnam we all know that vietnam is a terrible war they every soldier almost every soldier who came back had some form of ptsd they it was just a brutal war and probably one of the most deadliest in american history yeah i i think uh, this uh, is pretty obvious that it's against the war and I wanted to point out one quote that um, Vonnegut said. It says, my God, Vietnam is no football game. It's a slaughterhouse. And I think this quote helps us like understand um, why Vonnegut named his novel Slaughterhouse-Five. And I, I think that the slaughterhouse is a, a representation of what war is like. I think we talked about this a little bit last episode. But I think this quote from Vonnegut, which is, outside of the novel helps us uh, show that a little bit more. Yeah, I brought this up in the last episode, actually. I said that the name Slaughterhouse and Slaughterhouse-Five was made up because he wanted to call Dresden the Slaughterhouse. And I think this might be more evidence for that because he's saying that Vietnam is a slaughterhouse because of how many people are dying, just like the Americans made Dresden a slaughterhouse by slaughtering a ton of innocent people. Yeah, I want to add to that. in the in the same speech, he was talking about how um, it's this form of patriotism to go out and just fight, um, and that some Americans believe that this is the only kind of patriotism, um, and and how he wanted to change that. He was saying that um, that there can be patriotism in peace, um, but but we're so focused on on just fighting war and and like killing and winning. We're focused on winning, like like Dylan was saying, this football game. That um, that anything that is talked about with peace is just um, regarded as 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 nuts or just anti patriotism. Yeah, I think we saw that in what book did we have to read over the summer? Things they carried. Yeah, the things they carried. Uh, Ray Bradbury, right? Was the author? Mm, no, um, I think it was. Oh, I don't remember. All right. Well, anyways, whoever the author was, 
uh, he want he didn't want to go to Vietnam. He didn't want to fight. He wanted to escape up to Canada. He was actually there in the book, but he said in the book that he would be like a coward, un-American, not a patriot if he didn't fight. Because we view as being a soldier is like the greatest thing an American do is fight for your freedom, which is as you just said, Diego is highlighted here. Yeah, and then um, and then they go as far as to just boil us down. Uh, as a uh, communist versus um, capitalist. Oh, and by it was written by Tim O'Brien, and and yeah, oh, that's yeah. that's as far as um, as far as we get in in the war. We're just we're not even soldiers anymore who died. We're we're either the capitalist capitalists who died or the communists who died. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's the same reason we went to Korea to stop communism. Cold War was all about stopping communism. I also. Yeah. Uh, um, there was this other quote in the um, in the speech about the Vietnamese, specifically the um, uh, the North and the South Vietnamese. He was saying that instead of fighting the war, we could just bring the South Vietnamese over to America to give them freedom. Um, and when I read that, I I actually disagreed with it um, because I don't think we could give the South Vietnamese the freedom that that Kurt's talking about. Um, because every time that a a different uh, different country um, immigrate immigrates over here, we have immigrants coming, and we do the same thing every time. We we're we're just full of racism, and and we we call them aliens, and we just we have all these problems. And yeah, so I, I disagreed with the quote. Um, what about you guys? Yeah, I actually like that point. It seems like you could look at in the nineteen. 19- 40s or whenever when all the immigration was spiking when the Irish came when whoever came and initially they're they don't like them they're racist against them and yeah so this could be true with the South Vietnamese if they come during the Vietnam War they're most likely going to be treated the same way especially because when when the Irish came uh, I mean that was because of the potato famine but uh, one thing is that at least they looked like, you know, the white American. But yeah. uh, when, the, when the Japanese came, I mean, granted, this was after um, or during Pearl Harbor, uh, the Americans hated the Japanese, but, but still they, um, many racist cartoons had them looking like different, completely different. Uh, so I, yeah, we were, we're still racist and it would probably continue on to the, the Vietnamese. Exactly. And going back to the Japanese, they put them in internment camps. Yeah, probably one yeah. of the worst forms of racism in American history. Not the worst because, you know, slavery happened. But yeah, um, something else I want to bring up is a, it's another quote and I'll just read it. We are here to tell our president that we will not be ashamed if he admits it was a mistake. We can stand a resulting embarrassment. What is intoler- intolerable to us is that the mistake should go on and on and on. We are here to save lives. We are here to save our honor too. We are to prevent uh, victory through genocide. Uh, so what do you guys think about that quote? I think it's weird that it says victory through genocide. What do you guys think it, that means? I think it just it literally means we win by killing everybody. And that's the only way we win. There's no other form of winning uh, i mean look at back uh, at world war ii we won by uh dropping bombs on hiroshima and nagasaki yeah i, I could see that um 
Yeah, and they're called the president to uh, withdraw. They said he won't be ashamed. So do you think, I think the president was LBJ at this time. Do you think that he should have withdrawn or do you think he didn't because he felt that it would have been something bad? It would have looked bad for us to leave the war. Yeah, it might have looked bad for America if we just left the war like that. Like our, we don't have honor, but what Vonnegut is saying that there is still honor in admitting a mistake. I mean, yeah, for sure. There were there were political reasons for going into the Vietnam War in the first place. Um, I mean, they one of the general um, ideas was that we were going to stop communism, which was a, I, I mean, it was probably a front for other political reasons. Yeah, so I don't think the president would have decided to drop out of the war at any point because he, as soon as, as soon as he was in, I mean, he wasn't gonna just leave. Yeah, and good point. Crazy. And it, you're right; they called it. It was like a fight for "quote unquote" freedom. Yeah, because originally it had been a civil war against North uh, Vietnamese and South Vietnamese, so it really wasn't even our war in the first place, and we had just jumped in on one side. Exactly. All right, so. If we have nothing else here, I think we have Mr. Reed waiting for us to do the interview. But we'll have to keep Mr. Reed waiting for about one more minute because we have to hear about Yosef about his pizza. What if I told you you can have one of the most delicious items in the world and still be able to tell other people without feeling guilty? Made with aged organic milk, which contains calcium, protein, and vitamin A. Tossed over seasoned tomato puree spread that contains the antioxidant lycopene, sprinkled with garlic and basil that contains natural antibacterial properties, all crafted on a delicious baked wheat that provides B vitamins, iron, magnesium, and selenium. That's right, it's a pizza. It's healthy if you think about it. Your pizza, Yosa's pizza. All right, so now we have Mr. Reed joining us. And with Mr. Reed, we're going to discuss the possibility of what would have happened if Germany created the first atomic bomb. So first of all, this is from Vonnegut writing, before 1939, it was the accepted belief of scientists that it was theoretically possible to release atomic energy, but nobody knew any practical method of doing it. By 1942, however, we knew that the Germans were working feverishly to find a way to add atomic energy to all the other engines of war with which they hoped to enslave the world. But they failed. We, have, we may be grateful to Providence that the Germans got the V1s and V2 slates, and in limited quantities, and even more grateful that they did not get the atomic bomb at all. So, Mr. Reed, what do you think would have exactly happened if they created the atomic bomb before the Americans? Uh, I, ultimately, it really depends on what year. Um, if you're talking, you know, 43, 44, they probably would have been able to mount a pretty good uh attack on uh, and that's where it gets tough do they go for london eliminate london or do they go for um moscow 
uh, and that's where things would be interesting. If you're talking in the tail end of the war, so spring of 45, I don't know if they really would have been able to do much with it, even if they had developed it. Would they have been able to get an aircraft far enough into uh, allied controlled territory to do something significant with? It's hard to say. Now let's say, so it's after they got France and um, they're fighting to Moscow. Do you think they would go for Moscow or uh, Britain? Uh, all right, so basing it on like the, the more aggression they have towards the Soviets, I would probably assume they'd go after the Soviets. Uh, because just on the knowledge I have, the, the Soviet prisoners of war were treated horrifically while uh, US and like British prisoners of war uh, were treated with a little more respect. So looking at that, I think they would probably prefer ultimate destruction of, you know, a Soviet controlled city and use it as an example for uh, the British and the Americans. All right, and that would be, Vonnegut talks about this a lot in the book saying that he goes off examples of how they were terrible to the uh, Soviets and the Soviets in return were terrible to them. And was that because they saw the British more of part of the Aryan race, possibly? I can see a claim for that. Uh, it, it could also be that there is just more of a hostility towards uh, uh, Hitler's um, Nazi party viewed communism almost as negatively as uh, the United States did following World War II. So I, I think that's another component of it as well. So if uh, they drop it in Moscow, do you think they would have eventually taken the entire Soviet Union? So once again, that, that is looking at the year. If you're talking the end of the, the war, last ditch effort, uh, I don't think the bomb would have been enough for them in 1945. But if you're talking 1942, 43, I think it would have ultimately brought the war almost to an end. In favor of the Germans? Yes. All right. And then, so the Soviet falls, the quote says 1942, so we'll stick with that year. The Soviet Union falls. They are in complete control. Uh, Germany's complete control of almost all of Europe, right? Besides Great Britain? Yep. All right. So do you think the British would make one last stand or they just surrender? Uh, in that regard, I, I think with the sheer and utter destruction that would ensue, as uh, evident with Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, seeing that and knowing that the Russians were out, I don't think the British would be able to continue on the fight. And then America, would they join? Would we all be speaking German? Uh, so the U.S. already at that point was in the war. Um, I don't know. So the U.S. might not enter Europe whatsoever. They were definitely working towards it in 42, 43. U.S. didn't really touch ground until 
June of 44, if I'm recalling correctly. Um, so I don't think the U.S. would try to get involved in the European theater. Uh, they'd probably just continue to focus on the Japanese uh, due to, uh, you know, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Would that mean we'd still be, you know, independent today? I don't know. It would really depend on Hitler's steps forward as to whether or not they were going to try to completely conquer the entire world um, and if that would even be feasible. What are the odds you think it would be feasible, him taking everything? Because they had colonies in Africa, right? The, Fr the French and British and Soviets. So they would ultimately have control of those since their governments fell. Uh, theoretically, yeah, you'd think it would transfer. Um, however, those colonies within themselves had uprising and revolts already occurring against their colonial leaders. Uh, so you, I wouldn't think it'd be a smooth transition for the Germans, so it'd take them time trying to actually control other parts of the world. And it, it's one of those wonderful things. You have control of the whole world and, or a large chunk of it. What do you do with it? Like Germany is trying to control Europe and many could even question why, like unite Germany, control the German population. That's what you wanted more or less. And then you continue to go on after that. What's the point? Um, if you, your goal is to control the whole world. Cool. Um, go for it. But how are you going to actually maintain that control? and power in the long term. Well, yeah, the British Empire kind of tried and they weren't able to maintain it. Uh, you can go through all of history, Romans, um, the, what should we call it? The British, the Spanish, uh, the French, the, all of them had empires at some point and I mean, look at right now, the U.S. kind of has an empire, China, Russia. Are they all sustainable? Are they all going to last long enough? Probably not. They all come to an end at some point. All right. And then I'm going to kind of switch the focus here a little bit. So do you think that the Germans had any other like secret weapons uh, be made at the time other than the possibility of an atomic bomb? Are we talking like Hydra stuff here? Is well, uh, Diego, the first question actually on this list is how accurate is Hydra in Captain America? <laughs> um, so, yeah, absolutely. They're going to have like secret weapons, uh, just like the U.S. wasn't just looking at, um, whatchamacallit, nuclear weapons. Uh, every country at this point was trying to find a better way to kill more people quicker. And with that, you had a lot of innovation, which led to more people dying. Uh, in terms of what exactly they were looking into, I don't necessarily know, but I, I, it's a pretty safe assumption that they were looking at other forms of weaponry to you know, kill a bunch of people very quickly. And actually one of them would be looking at gases, which I know they experimented with because later on in the war, that's how they, you know, exterminated large amounts of Jewish people in concentration camps. So no Tesseract? 
Probably not. No, sorry, Dave. All right, Dylan and Diego, you guys have any follow-up questions? Well, uh, I kind of have one that's more like morality related. It's not about history, but I think your uh, knowledge might help with this. But like, how morally right are these bombings, like the the ones on Dresden and then the ones on Hiroshima? The, uh, so like, is the message that they send more important or are the, the innocent lives more important? So I, that's one of the really interesting things that I, I try to bring up with a few different classes I've taught where uh, even the, the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki um, killed less people combined than uh, the U.S. bombings on uh, Tokyo. We firebombed the hell out of Tokyo. I, if I'm recalling, it's a very similar story with Dresden. We bombed the hell out of them, killing, I don't think, uh, do you guys know how many in Dresden? I know that it was more than the atomic bombs. Okay, so yeah. about 200,000? Uh, yeah, I'd put it somewhere over there. Okay, so very similar to Tokyo. And it's, it is, it's just targeting morale. Um, is in the horrific thing is, had we lost the war, would it be too far to say that our generals and our president would not be tried for war crimes? But then on the flip side, you get into World War II is a complete and total war. All aspects aspects of life is part of the war. So anyone working in a factory, anyone working for the enemy is in the war effort. So does that then make it justifiable to bomb anyone and everyone? Tough to say. Morally, you'd say no. Ethically, you can use this to sleep at night. Now, you talk about taking up morale throughout history or even World War II. Would you say that that's an effective tactic? Uh, what, diminishing morale? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, ultimately, if your soldiers, the people actually fighting the war, don't have a drive or passion for it, why would they continue to do it? Uh, you're not going to see, like, mass uh, desertion and all that, but you will see people less willing to, you know, even march a little further each day, um, push their equipment to the limit, try to get things to work faster so that they could, you know, cause more destruction. Um, all that adds up. And if people aren't, you know, motivated and uh, encouraged by what you're trying to do, they're just not going to do what they're supposed to as either efficiently or at all. All right, that makes sense. Uh, Diego, Dylan, you guys got anything else? Yeah, I've got a question about, again, the, the nuclear program and everything, and, and you kind of answered this a little, uh, kind of with uh, Dylan's morality question. So we got to the, 
nuclear production first. Um, I mean, but had the Germans, we already discussed it, they would have, you know, decided to bomb whoever they decided. Um, and how different does that make us in, in Germany? Are we, are we any different? The fact that, that we were trying to win the war. Um, I'm saying this in terms of uh, we got to nuclear power first. Uh, what are you trying to say? Because we developed nukes, you know, American exceptionalism and all that were all great. Uh, no, ultimately, I, I don't think anyone who was working in the Manhattan Project would think that they were necessarily smarter than the German scientists trying to do the same thing. Um, many of them knew that Germany was working on it and they themselves were trying to do everything they could once again, this kind of ties into like morale, like they're working to make sure they beat the other side because the message of what the other side is doing, they view as horrible. Um, how the Nazis were able to convince the people in the, you know, Nazi government and all that, that the other side was horrible, don't fully know. It's a weird question to think about, but um, I don't think we're any better than them or they're any better than us. It's honestly, it comes down to at the right people at the right time and a little bit of luck. Well, yeah, going off that, I think Albert Einstein said, cause he like had the original ideas of splitting the atom that seeing it was like one of the worst, the most horrible things you've ever witnessed. Yeah, most scientists after actually being successful with the Manhattan Project, most of them uh, were pretty adamant that we should not use this technology, if I'm recalling correctly, because it is, uh, I think they might even use the quote where we opened Pandora's box and look at the world today. Uh, no one, some of us feel a little bit of a sense of, oh, we're all safer because you know, the United States has thousands of nuclear warheads and so does our enemies, yay. But at the end of it, uh, the development of this technology has brought us closer to a mass extinction event than any other technology in our history. Yeah, and even um, Kurt Vonnegut in Slaughterhouse-Five, he, he says that he wishes those weapons of mass destruction never were made. Like he says, he wishes those were back in the ground where they came from. So even soldiers didn't like these bombs. And then um, finally, do you think that countries are making any type of, I don't want to say advancements on the nuclear warheads, but new types of bombs that would be worse than a nuclear warhead? All right. So... I'm going to hit you with a, a complete opposite uh, move here. Um, people, uh, some things I've read and, and uh, researched on actually fear the opposite of um, making like bigger and more powerful. That's not what they're worried about actually. They're more worried about, and I think justly so, making smaller ones, making it where you have a little, uh, you know, drone strike that drops a, a mini atomic bomb um, to eliminate someone. 
having, uh, I mean, back in the day, they developed um, like artillery shells that were nuclear warheads. Uh, if you make it so that they're smaller and we start to normalize the use of like smaller ones, then people start thinking, well, if we can use the smaller ones to do this, why not use a bigger one to, you know, hit this bigger target? And then when do you stop? Where does the, where do you draw a line? You think originally the line's here and then it just keeps moving forward. Um, that's what I'd say is more terrifying than like a bigger, more advanced, as is they're big enough to wipe out cities, as is they're big enough to um, more or less hit anywhere in the world, probably down to like an inch of where we want them to go. That technology is good. It's the use of them in smaller devices that would be more horrific. So the smaller ones, would they be able to make as big of an impact as the big ones? Like would a small one on a drone be able to wipe out a city? No, so it'd be a much smaller like targeted thing where like, yeah, a small one wipes out like St. Rita's campus. All right. Um, and then you make it so that no one can really go there again because anyone who like tries to go there, like if we're talking like a terrorist group, they can't use that site as like uh, a rallying call because if they go there, then you know, radiation exposure and all that horrific stuff. But it's, it's then looking at, we start normalizing it and then it makes it so that people start thinking, oh, it's just another bomb, no biggie, instead of thinking, no, no, big mushroom cloud, we don't, we don't want that. All right. And then um, Diego, Dylan, any final questions? Yes, I have a question. Um, so if nukes were taken away, do you think we would just end up using uh, something along the lines of biological warfare? No. Because biological warfare is a violation of the Geneva Convention. We're, we're not allowed to use uh, chemical weapons or biological weapons to weaponize diseases or chemicals is uh, crimes against humanity. How nuclear weapons don't really fall into that. Eh, it's one of the powers of being the United States and writing those rules, I guess. Um, I, I would hope that we would just simply return to uh, conventional weaponry and all that, which not great, but you're not eradicating an entire city and making it uninhabitable for you know hundreds of years. And in addition to that, warfare, I don't know if you guys are aware of it, warfare is not being fought with bombs or soldiers or anymore. Most of it, it's all cyber. A lot of it is shifted away from the conventional means of war and targeting uh, infrastructure, targeting uh, the stock market. Um, all of that stuff is where most warfare seems to be shifting, in my opinion. All right, then. I think that's all. So thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you guys for having me. Good luck with this. Welcome back to the podcast, and in this segment, we'll be discussing 
about the meaning behind Kilgore Trout's novels. And then the question that everyone has been waiting for, what is the meaning of all those dots? So there's one there's this quote that I want to read and then we can talk about it. Uh, most of Trout's novels, after all, dealt with time warps and extrasensory perception and other unexpected things. Trout believed in things like that, was greedy to have their existence proved. So uh, what type of, what things does that uh, quote bring up? Well, we know that Vonnegut in the books puts that people view Trout as kind of strange. He's weird. And we know that after Billy goes to Trout Famidor, his daughter also views him as strange and weird. So that could be, I think that maybe Trout was on Trout Famidor because he has the same idea of time and the perceptions and all that. And people call him weird, maybe because this is what he talks about. Like people call Billy weird because that's what he talked about because that they saw the same thing on Trail Famidor and believed it. And then he also said he's greedy to approve it, which could also go to he's tired of people calling him weird and strange and messed up in the head. So he wants to prove it that way people stop calling him that. Yeah, and I, I think that's why Billy liked um, Trout so much because he had a he had an explanation for uh, for something that Billy couldn't really grasp, like uh, because of his PTSD and all that. He was um, he was viewing like different times and different uh, places, and and Trout's book explained it perfectly. You know, it's not that you have PTSD; it's that you can time travel. It's that you can you can go to Trautmador and all that. So I think. Um, I think that's why Billy really liked it. And yeah, I think it's possible that Trout himself had uh, had gone to Trout's door. And and that's why that I think that's even more why Billy likes him because he can he can relate to his experience uh when he went. I agree. And then early oh sorry, Dylan, do you want to go? No, you can go. All right. Earlier in the book, um Trout asked the Trout Famidorians, why me? And that's usually a question we ask when we are like the lone survivor out of something. And this is something Billy did twice. He was the lone survivor in Dresden, one of the lone survivors. And he was one of the lone survivors in the plane crash. So I think that's part of the reason why he asked why me. But now he sees someone else who has done it. So he's like, I'm not the only one anymore. And he he doesn't feel he gets reason for why this is happening to him through trout. He sees an example of himself and trout. And I agree with you. That's why he likes trout. He reads his books. And one of the only people who we figured out in the book who actually knows who trout is and actually reads his books. Yeah. There's that attraction to trout is because of like the, the similar experiences. Um, so should we talk about this next quote? Uh, yeah. you, okay, I'll read it. Uh, it was dropped on them from airplanes. Robots did the dropping. They had no conscience and no circuits which would allow them to imagine what was happening to the people on the ground. And nobody held it against them that he dropped jelly gasoline on people. But they found his helistosis unforgivable. But then he cleared that up and he was welcomed to the human race. Um, so what do we think about that? I think in a way he's describing Dresden. They're in airplanes and they're dropping firebombs on them. And they have no regard to the innocent civilians. They're like robots programmed without emotion. They don't care about what they're doing to the people. And like America, we know this is bad. 
but we view it as, yeah, they admitted it, we forgive them, when it's really something that's unforgivable, killing this many people. Yeah, because had this been um, anyone else, like, for example, the Germans, um, they wouldn't have been welcomed back to the human race. We would have uh, prosecuted them for war crimes like we did at the end of World War II. Right, and that's something Mr. Reed brought up in the interview. He said, "Had it's scary to think had America lost, we would have also, our leaders would have been prosecuted for war crimes like we prosecuted the Germans. And this is an example. Dresden is a war crime. Yeah, and this uh, also relates a little bit back to our interview with Matt's cousin from uh, the war. Like, um, that the terrorists who were shooting at the medical helicopter, even though it, um, that's that's a is it a, a war crime or it's just something that you shouldn't do because they oh no yeah it's a war crime yeah they were carrying they people who they're actually on the terrorist side and they were helping them out but the terrorists didn't care and I think like. Uh, uh, Vonnegut's kind of talking about how, like, why why are we doing this like that, kind of. Exactly. He's comparing everyone to having no emotion. He's basically calling these soldiers doing this robots. Yeah, uh, I think it's something important that um, Matt's cousin uh, said, something about the, the Geneva Convention. Um, it's important to note that the, the terrorists, weren't in the Geneva Convention. They didn't have. They didn't sign into the G- Geneva Convention, so they didn't have to follow those rules. And I think um, even if they did, you know, in time of in times of war, you know, when when are we called to follow those rules? When are we? When do we go? Oh yeah, this is a rule. We can't. We can't do that. Exactly. And as Mr. Reed said in the interview, uh, nuclear bombs aren't war crimes. You can drop them, and that's totally fine. Which is weird. But then he mentioned that America wrote the rules. So obviously they're not going to say you can't drop nuclear bombs because then we'd be guilty of a war crime again because we dropped nuclear bombs. Okay. Um, I have a, a proposition and I want to see if you guys agree with this. So <laughs> right. do you guys think that Trout is the representation of, of Vonnegut? Oh, um, I, I can, ex- I can explain a little bit more. Because, yeah, go ahead. Um, well, both of them are writers and uh, Vonnegut's novels before Slaughterhouse-Five weren't widely known. So maybe Vonnegut is like kind of describing his uh, writing career using Trout. And then uh, I want to add on to that with the quote from a biography of Kurt Vonnegut where it says, he had already developed a cult following of college students, and this was when he was before Slaughterhouse Five, but he broke through to a mass audience with the novel. So maybe, like, maybe this cult could represent Billy in the novel, who uh, Vonnegut describes as like an avid fan of Trout. I actually think that's um, a good theory because uh, both uh, Vonnegut and Trout. They, they wrote what we would call sci-fi, but they both would argue that their books are not sci-fi, but in fact, like actual fact, because um, uh, 
Trout is trying to prove that Trout Fumador is an actual thing. And Vonnegut would argue that that his books are not sci-fi. So I, I think it, it it's plausible that that Trout could be Vonnegut in the in the novel. Yeah, I actually thought of this before we started the segment. And I Googled it. And it says, uh, who does Kilgore Trout based on? And it says Theodore Sturgeon. And uh, saying this is right, because I still like your idea. I'm not necessarily, I don't know who this guy is, so I don't know if I agree with this. But anyways, I'll read it. So the character of science fiction author Kilgore Trout, who debuts in Kurt Vonnegut's office, God bless you, Mr. Rosewater, was actually based on friend and fellow author Theodore Sturgeon. The two became friends when Sturgeon moved to Turo, Massachusetts. Now, um, I'm trying to see. I can't tell if from this if Vonnegut confirmed that, but I still like your idea better, mostly because I have no idea who this guy is. And it does make sense. Everything you guys said is true. And plus, he's kind of writing his own book within his book by writing about the air robots, as we talked about, something that he's against, something that kind of this whole book is about and against. And he talks about Trout Framador in a short excerpt by, excerpt by Trout, something that the whole book is about and something that now Trout has wrote about. Right. And Vine could, could be like bashing himself because maybe he's saying that he's not, he's not successful because maybe he's not a good writer, but obviously we know that's not true now. Oh, yeah, that could be he was, as what you said earlier, he never really sold a book. He wasn't famous. And so, yeah, he's saying he's a bad writer. He was kicked out of, wasn't he failing out of his journalist class? Isn't that what Mr. Baffle talked about before we started reading the book? Uh, yeah, I think so. He Yeah, so he's always felt like he's a failure. That way he put himself in the book as Kilgore Trout as a failure. Oh, I just looked up Theodore Surgeon. And it says that he wrote Star Trek scripts, and this is kind of sci-fi, like Star Trek, I guess. Okay, now the question that everyone's been waiting for, it's the title of our podcast, what is with all the dots? Now, Diego, I want to ask you the question, what is with all the dots? Hmm, I don't know. I think we should ask Matt. I think he's got a better idea of what's with all those dots. Oh, I I don't think those dots are that important. So, Dylan, why don't you try to explain them? Well, I mean the, the dots. There, there's three of them. The dots are a wonderful thing. I like dots. Dots are cool. You know, I want to think really deep about this. So, just give me give me a few seconds. I need to focus. Ooh, ooh, I got something. What Tell if, um, so we know in the book that he mentioned Trail Famidorian splitting their books up in the middle, something weird like that, right? Sure. So what if he just modeled it after the Trail Famidorian's books? Um, I, I think that's a very dumb theory. You, oh. Do you want to hear... I you want to hear my theory? Agree with you in every every single way. Okay, I fine. Like that. What do you you think you had something better? I think 
that they just break up the stories. That is a stupid idea because sometimes it's talking about the same exact thing after the dots. And you know, I think it's better than your theory because, like, that just makes absolutely no sense. Oh, okay, Diego. Okay, guys, hear, hear me out, hear me out. I, I just thought about this right now. What if the fractured structure of Slaughterhouse Survives vignettes, a few paragraphs or less at a time, chunked together and separated from other chunks by three little dots, an ellipsis, if you will, linking one chunk to the next with something silent in between, a pregnant pause to make the audience consider the awkwardness going on in front of them, works as an extended metaphor for Billy's fractured mind that is obviously suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. The author's mind is perhaps in tow, too, if the reader's to believe this novel is Vonnegut's PTSD self-medication. There are running jokes throughout Vonnegut tells us at the end of chapter one, how the rest of the novel literally begins and ends. We are, we are repeatedly told that Edgar Derby will die and there's winking and there's the winking mattress, so it goes. Gallagher also points out that the novel is heavily foreshadowed and that the protagonist is aware of his future with a degree of omnipotence. The foreshadowing is used to comedic effect. The narrator knows how the story will end and wishes to let his audience plan the joke. I mean, that's just coming straight from the brain. I mean, I don't know. What do you guys think? I am awestruck by that brilliant explanation. Where did you even come up with that? That's like amazing. I I completely agree with you. That is like ma- that is like a master's thesis level. Definitely not from. What is really funny, humor ahead of its time in the 20th century American novel by Timothy Baffo. I mean, no, that, no, no, Mr. Baffo can't think of that. I, yeah, I think if anything, he should take advice from you when writing a master's thesis. I 100% agree. And I hope when he listens to this, he will learn to do so. I mean, the points that you brought up here, it makes you consider what is going on. I mean, I did not know that. So I didn't pause at the dots and think about everything that was happening. But in a way I did, like I was highlighting things uh, for things for us to talk about in this podcast. And I think a lot of things we talked about on this podcast were parts of Vonnegut's points. Yeah, I know um, he had PTSD, but I'd never thought about it so deeply as that it was connected to the story and to the dots. Right. And I never really picked up that all those things were jokes because, well, I didn't really laugh. So, yeah, when he said, like, Edgar Derby will die, I didn't just sit in my chair laughing at that. But if you say it's a joke, Dylan, I will believe you. And I really like the idea where he says an extended metaphor for Billy's fractured mind, because we talked about in our first episode and even a little bit in our second. I don't think we talked about it today. His PTSD. And I know, Diego, you kind of touched upon this, but you're right. He maybe when you're recalling what's happening you kind of leave parts out, then you remember them. It's like an incoherent story. And that's exactly what this is. It's an incoherent story. There's no beginning, no middle, no end. And Diego, as you told me I was wrong, that's what I said before Dylan came up with this brilliant answer. And I just then never related to his PTSD, which makes sense. When When you're sitting with a psychiatrist talking about your PTSD, you have to take breaks because sometimes it triggers something. It triggers the war again. You're thinking about it. You get scared and all that. And so maybe that's what he's doing. Now, I'm not saying that he's sitting there writing it and then he has uh, a mental breakdown because he's going through this. So I has to skip that part and come back to it. But I don't know. Do you guys think that could be possible? 
Uh, yeah, in, in all seriousness, I also think your uh, Charles Medor theory could hold up because the, the stories are broken down. Now, whether it's because of PTSD or uh, he's decided to write it in a Charles Medorian style, um, he's not he's not the, the problem, the, or not, not the problem, but uh, I think it, it still holds water that this could be in the style of, of Charles Medor because the, story, the stories are broken up in in like yeah different different segments like the beginning could be the end or the end could be the beginning um and like yeah um a lot of there's a lot of foreshadowing right in the middle right at the beginning and also right at the end yeah exactly now the question becomes we know trail famador is not a real place um, well unless if it is and vonnegut actually went there but i don't think so now anyways why do the trail famadorians write this way do we have any idea? Is it even possible to know? I mean, why does he? I mean, we know he's modeling after himself, but why does he blame it on that? How the Trail Famadorians, right? Because I think maybe he relates to the Trail Famadorians because their their reality is so much different from uh, what humans think of reality. So maybe he's trying to. His broken mind is trying is relating to like the broken structure of how the Trafmadorians think of time. Yeah, I I could see that. Mr. Baffles said that Vonnegut's purpose is to show us not to think laterally. And obviously this book isn't written laterally. And anything that happens in Trafamadori isn't laterally. So he just wants to make us think differently, which he has successfully done so. So overall, I think it's a pretty good tactic. Right, yeah, because uh, I think we discussed it in class, but uh, time is is uh, is a concept. So it's it's up to whoever is reading the the novel, or it's up to a Trafalgarian what what we think time is. So in in the, in the case of the novel, time is obviously not uh, it's it's not linear, um, and we're given that perspective throughout the novel. Yeah, I one hundred percent agree. So, congratulations. You learned what is with all the dots. Dylan, take it away. Well, there you have it, folks. The meaning of the dots. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It's been fun, but unfortunately, all of us have decided that we'll be retiring from making this podcast since we are no longer being graded for it. So instead, we will be moving on to new endeavors where everyone can bond with. So, if you want to support our work, make sure to check out our TikTok account where we'll be examining and analyzing the novel The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn via popular TikTok memes such as the Woe and the Renegade. Cash on me, I got hit the lottery, the lottery.